High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. This morning I am talking to a colleague who knows things that I don't know and I thought he would be the right person to have on. We are going to talk about the medium-term budget policy statement which was given last week by the Minister of Finance, Enoch Rodongwana, and it's popularly referred to by its acronym of MTBPS, which is looks like it was a Soviet-era acronym for some shady I don't know, agency that would delve into your private life. But presumably I'm, that's not what the medium-term budget policy statement is. So, Chris, Chris Hutton, welcome to Chai. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. I think you're not too far off with the Sovietization. Um, it is all about managing the country's finances, what it would impact on businesses, what's going to happen with our taxes that we pay. So in a way, it is the central planners still doing their thing. <laughs> no surprise, surprise. Well, in that case, I'm going to ask a really silly question. And that is, what is the policy statement? What is, what purpose does it serve? So it sets out the, the national treasury's forecast and look back uh, in terms of the past six months and the upcoming six months broadly with a few extra thrown in here and there. But sort of it sets out the, the stall for what current state this, the country's finances are in or the fiscus. Mm-hmm. So uh, in terms of GDP, tax revenue, collection, uh, spending, government departments, what allocations they receive, tax increases, although those aren't usually announced in a medium-term budget policy statement, but rather in the main budget in February every year. It's sort of, it's delivered in speech form by the Minister of Finance, but it tries to set out what are the government's priorities, does it have enough money to do what it wants, uh, what will the impact be on the country, does it need to tax us more or not. All that sort of thing is included in, in, the, in the policy statement. So is it essentially a kind of midway point in the February from the February-March budget where you look back and you say, okay, we're halfway there, you know, can we afford this? What can't we do? What can we do? What's not working? What is working? Yes, absolutely. And you sort of take stock of of what did you forecast in February or previous years and where are you now? Were your forecasts accurate or not? Why mm-hmm. weren't they accurate or not? Are you fully acknowledging what factors are at play? Do you think the country's finances are in very good health when they're actually doing very poorly? It sort of provides an opportunity for a review both in terms of the state of the finances, but also what what is the, the government's policy direction. So the policies, the plans that government implements, the programs, are, what, are they still effective or not? And if not, what can or should be done? Um, what Before sort of looking into the, 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 the actual things he said, what was your impression of Enoch Gonaguana's take on where we're at? I mean, we, we know that he represents a a party that has, I don't know, struggles to or just doesn't get to grips with the fact that our policy making is, is by and large awful. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's virtually contrary to what we actually need. Does the, do you think Gorongwana appreciates that? I think to an extent, in terms of how he presented it, which can, of course, always, as with any politician, I suppose, from any political party, could be for show or not. But there wasn't a sort of... There were a few humorous moments, one or two jokes. But overall, the tone and the way in which he spoke, some of the terminology used, especially around the state and entities, 
around the deficit, around the debt burden that government needs to take on. There, I think there was a bit of a realization that things are in a very parlous state. Mm. Now, whether that, that translates to the rest of the cabinet is obviously a different question. I do think given the contents of this particular budget policy statement, perhaps he did manage to convince some who would have, I don't know, wanted something like the NHI, for example, to be declared already. Um, it can be funded. We'll get the money from pension funds or whatever else. So I think there was a bit of a, a success on his part, but I think you saw in his demeanor in the wording, uh, if he's a representation of government in this instance, it's government realizing, you know, maybe some of what we've done has negative consequences. Whether we actually acknowledge our role in that or not is a different thing, but maybe realizing reality is quite harsh and difficult at the moment, and at least some questions need to be asked. Mm-hmm. But it certainly differs from the presentation uh, Sir Ramaphosa gave last week or the week before. I'm losing track um, in his sort of family meeting where you got the impression that whatever was wrong happened. In other words, it happened passively. It, it, it somehow it was the co- it was COVID. It was etc. It was the, the financial crash in 2008. Um, but kind of it wasn't the ANC's fault. So mm-hmm. I think we're, we're looking at those two positions currently. So let's let's look at some of the detail. Um, the deficit is larger than the, the envisage. It's it's four point nine percent as opposed to the envisage four percent. What 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 does that mean and what impact does it have? So your deficit or size thereof is taken as a part of GDP. So four percent of GDP or in this case four point nine percent of GDP and that's what you then need to shore up your spending if you aren't collecting enough in terms of tax revenue, for example. And at the moment, given the pressures on uh, the South African middle class, many people choosing to leave the country, but also just many people struggling financially, not being able to run businesses that are, as they might have done before, you're seeing a general decline in tax revenue, and that is, again, putting pressure on government. Another particular item to highlight is lower tax revenues collected from exports, so from commodities that South Africa has traditionally done very well at, uh, with mining, agriculture, other commodities. Given the many issues at our railways and our ports, we're just not exporting like we used to, which in turn means less for the government to collect. So even a government like ours that tries to be this developmental state, tries to implement welfare programs for poor South Africans, indigent citizens, that you need to fund that somehow, you fund fund those programs that needs to come from somewhere, and they've shot themselves in the foot by not allowing um, the ports and the railways to function as they as well as they could do, maybe in a more competitive open market. Mm-hmm. So presumably, then um, the 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 real option for government is borrowing more. Yes, absolutely, and you see that in terms of the debt burden and the interest on the debt. So in that regard, we're seeing the debt-to-GDP ratio is now forecast to grow to 77.7% of GDP in 2025-26. In February this year, it was forecast at 73.6%. If you want to put that differently, over a fifth of all revenue that the government collects, or 20.7% in the current year, is needed to service the debt. And that is more than what the state spends on healthcare, education, or social protection. So... Just paying the interest on your debt as, as you would as an individual on your credit card, for example, if you go into debt, you need to pay interest on that. Those debt servicing costs are becoming a big issue for the South African government. And 
let's assume fiscal responsibility is implemented now, this will only then manifest in a positive sense within the next three to four years if government sticks to that. But mm. the temptations for increased debt and spending are just so big. Um, and in, in that regard, with government maybe realizing these debt uh, pressure points, this could explain, not to change the conversation too radically, but some of South Africa's moves around countries like Russia and China, where instead of going to the International Monetary Fund in the future, we can go to other countries to help us with our debt problems. Mm, mm. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I get the sense, but um, I, I can't accomplish it, but I get the sense that in going to, in looking towards Russia and China, it might be hoping for, for relief and assistance that it may not get. I mean, China's been a bit burnt by its Belt and Road Initiative and discovering that the countries that it, it loans money to don't, aren't necessarily in a position to pay them back. And, uh, Russia, other than oil, you know, are they being a bit hopeful? Probably so. Um, you're exactly right to point out the Belt and Road Initiative uh, hiccups, as it were. But I think maybe the current, the current administration is trying to hedge its bets somewhat. So at least open yourself up to other options if you need mm-hmm. some kind of capital injection or debt relief or financial assistance. So maybe it'll be directly to China. Maybe you'll go through the BRICS development, through the new development bank, the entity of BRICS. Uh, maybe you'll go to countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE. Um, Iran might not have that capacity if it becomes more involved, um, as might be the case in the Middle East and what's going on in Israel. But I think the government maybe is trying to play these sorts of games in that direction. It's not just the case of in the moment we're, we're non, non-aligned on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's more we're trying to not be perceived as too close to the West, quote unquote. So at least we have other avenues. For financial assistance, if we need it. Well, then I think I'll have to get you back on another program to talk about AGOA in that regard, having just uh, hosted the AGOA forum uh, in South Africa. But what is interesting, and this is this is obviously going to go against the uh, socialist grain of the ANC, is the it's already started, but the plans to cut non-interest spending. Um, so if it's I guess it's like. Um, Public sector salaries and that sort of thing. Um, what what does he plan to do? How much does he plan to save? And how likely is he <laughs> to succeed in getting the ANC to do what is necessary? Well, so here you could maybe convince the ANC to engage in this sense of maybe cutting some elements of spending and then put yourself in a stronger position long term, so that you can still then fund whatever programs you want if you assume that you're going to win a majority in the elections next year, all that kind of thing. In terms of the details, the medium-term budget policy statement aims for a um, to cut non-interest spending by 3.7 billion rand net, um, that is versus the, the targets for the February budget. Against that baseline, the statement also announced 37.3 billion rand worth of cuts for next year and 47.7 billion rand for the year thereafter. Um, and also that that forms part of all the assistance to state-owned entities, all these bailouts that they all always seem to get. Um, and in that particular vein, again, to maybe give credit or some sense of hope is from from the ESCOM point of view, the debt relief for ESCOM, that is now interest-bearing, whereas beforehand it was interest-free. So 
around 254 billion rand debt relief package announced earlier this year uh, at various stages of implementation and handing over to ESCOM. But I think a good sign that at least it comes now with interest. So again, the pressure on ESCOM to actually perform and in- increase revenue collection, increase its service delivery, all that sort of thing. Let's see again if government can actually stick to this because as, as I mentioned, it is an election year, election cycle towards the elections in 2024. The temptations are very large for government to just pull out the money printer and start bailing out, increasing social grants, all that sort of thing. Mm. I mean, interesting along that line is the point you, ma- you, you made in writing about uh, Transnet not getting a bailout just because they want one, a uh, hundred billion rand apparently. Um, why are they getting so tough? I mean, it's clearly a good thing, but uh, a bit more robust than I thought they were capable of. Mm. Yeah, it could it could come down to rhetoric and wanting to now present a bit more of a fiscally responsible picture before the elections um, to South Africans, to foreign investors who, who, who the government needs to buy its bonds. Um, South Africa's risk premium has increased over the last mm. two years. So what that means is the price of government bonds and the risk that investors take on when they get when they buy those bonds is higher than it would have been otherwise. So that also puts a, a dampener on on government raising revenue uh, and sort of additional funding. So it could be part of that that longer term game of presenting a more fiscally stable and responsible picture, and then still shifting um, later down the line that you still implement the sort of policies and ideas that you wanted to. All the time, again, things like the NHI, basic income grant, yeah. all that sort of thing. But the transnet point absolutely is, is right to highlight and to give credit mm. in this particular instance where it's due. Um, transnet would need a cash injection of 47 billion rand. This was announced in the, in the latest uh, turnaround plan uh, released two, two weeks ago or so. That is part of that 100 billion rand that you mentioned earlier. So, it's it's noteworthy that the minister included this, that Treasury included this, and also Treasury didn't say, you know, rule out any sort of assistance in the future to Transnet, but it's also tied to this idea of Transnet needs to, number one, improve its performance, but also show how it is implementing whatever reforms, policy reforms necessary to to unlock private sector investment in logistics, in the ports, in the rail, all that sort of thing. So it's a bigger project of trying to f- introduce some sort of new ideas and reform in the logistics sector, not just a bailout for transit, but it has all these other conditional items. Um, I mean, I suppose the question is, uh, does transit have the managerial heft necessary for for planning, a t- you know, for, for to creating a credible plan for turnaround? In all probability not. Um, you had the recent sort of exodus in terms of uh, former CEO Porsche Derby, a few other high-level individuals, I think also the former CFO, um, others coming in now. Um, I, I think on the ESCOM side this weekend, Nteto Nyati, now the, the chair of the ESCOM board, he told Newsroom Africa that they have now put forward three candidate names to the Minister of Public Enterprises, Pravin Gordon. So these SOEs, yeah, a big sort of skills and brains exodus mm. and if one if you hinge all their success just on the board and the sort of executive getting things right it might take way too long um i think the the force of reality might once again 
put government in the position of where they need to spin off entities and departments and then sort of let things go from there because trying to turn the ship around from the very top, the whole entity, if you take, if you continue to, to take too long, the country as a whole suffers in terms of investment, the movement of goods, um, the country's appeal for investment, all that sort of thing. The longer you take, I think the worse for the country's reputation and future. Well, he, he had the statement identified probably the thing that most, let's say, rational economic observers have said is it, the, as he says, the central problem is low economic growth mm-hmm. and that major reforms are critical and unavoidable. Now, I know that this kind of gets said by the um, Reserve Bank annually, saying there's only so much we can do. The rest is up to the government to change policy. How likely is the government to change policy because of that extraordinary old-fashioned ideological bent it has? I mean, we most of us instinctively know what needs to be done. Um, and, he, and he's saying that it's essentially not up to me, it's up to you guys, the, my colleagues in cabinet. I, I'm not sure I can marry the, the possibility of their changing policy with their need to meet, for example, their, their, their pre-election stumping to say, you know, we will give you the poor more. Because policy won't yeah, support that. Hmm. Yeah, it's 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 exactly right in how they they try and balance these things all the time when they see the consequences of their policies, but they won't change those policies. Things like cater deployment, very rigid labour markets. Um, at the moment, looking at things like doubling down on forms of BEE through the Employment Equity Amendment Bill, uh, pressing down on South Africa's youth and their potential through keeping a very big public education sector going with funding for unions and non-performing players in the public sector, and, and that also increases the public sector wage bill. So it's a very tenuous balancing act, and I don't know that they will necessarily maintain this bit of a road that they're now on with this medium-term budget policy statement with some sense of fiscal responsibility. The temptations, as you point out, are very very high in an election year. Um, but there, there could also be an element of some pragmatism winning through, despite their best wishes and intentions, obviously. Um, ultimately, the party is of the view that it, sh- it, it, it is leading and should lead the national democratic revolution. It needs to administer states and entities, the levers of the state, the public sector to, to lead and shape society in a more quote-unquote transformed direction. That's the rhetoric. And then also that's coupled with, at the moment, just perverse incentives with the cater deployment where uh, people were placed in positions not necessarily on merit but on party connections. You need to maintain those, the flow of funds in all those directions to keep all of your constituencies and all the people happy. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. So also just pure, um, I guess, perverse pragmatism in that sense is at play. And we'll see if these can really be broken up substantially for some kind of new wind or, or reform to come in. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, just finally, um, let's just look at the national health insurers because this is the sort of subject that everyone um, is concerned about at every level in society. Um, we're looking at a, a plan that is probably unworkable um, and hellishly expensive to run, but to, 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 I think to, the figures are roughly to set up the, the, uh, the, the fund will be about what, 500, 700 billion, somewhere, somewhere between that. Um, in other words, it, it, 
it cannot cannot possibly be done um now where where's where's the what's what sort of signals is the government sending out on this so on the NHR itself, very interesting that nothing said about it in the medium-term budget policy statement. That doesn't mean it won't be in the, the February budget next year. But from the legislative side, the, the noise that's coming from the Department of Health, or at least those pushing for for the NHI, um, is that the NHI bill will be signed before the end of this year, so before December possibly. But even those proponents of the NHI, people like Dr. Nicholas Crisp at the Department of Health, have indicated that it will be a long-term process. So not, not a specific timeline, but maybe over between five to 10 years, you implement this, you sign the bill, you implement this plan, that plan, you move funds from certain departments, you move allocations around, all that sort of thing. Last week, there were indications that the medical, medical aid tax credits will come to an end and the, those monies and funds will also be used to fund the NHI. So the vision is for an NHI, but at the moment, the I guess you can call it the pragmatic tones are it's going to be implemented over a long period of time, which isn't necessarily a good thing because already, again, it sends a signal of uncertainty to medical professionals, to South Africans about their medical care, what's going to happen, am I still going to have medical aid, where can I go, all that sort of thing. So it's, yeah, they've, they've kicked it into touch for the time being, but it's still a very strong part of their agenda. I think, I think what it illustrates is that... Uh... Um, is the ANC recognizes um, the possible effect of the actual project, but completely either ignores or doesn't see the fact that the threat of something like NHI is in itself hugely damaging because young doctors in particular are going to leave the country if they if 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 they don't feel that they have the right right space in it, and that seems to be something that. The ANC just cannot cannot get to grips with is that the, the optics are bad, even if nothing eventuates in the long run. No, one hundred percent. We see this in many other areas, like mineral resources, with that legislation that has impacted negatively on investment. Things like expropriation without compensation, you know, promising that it won't be done in a ad hoc manner, all that sort of thing, but it still has a negative effect. Why would you invest here if there's even a possibility that your mm. property will? appropriate at any point, then you'll just look at investing elsewhere, like in Zambia, other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And then also with the NHI, things like South Africa's visa regime, the issues there, all of it just adds barriers of barriers to investors and gives people incentives to look elsewhere. So you, it's, it's this sort of, we, we obviously with South Africa winning the World Cup, You've got the focus on rugby. The cricket team has done well during the World Cup, um, the game against India notwithstanding. But perhaps our national sport should be con- – sorry, apparently, uh, I think maybe our national sport should be considered the art of the own goal, scoring the own goal. We do very well with our policies in that regard and puts us in a very weak position. Yeah. No, uh, uh, much as he tried, I think uh, our president failed to convince people that the government was, in fact, the glue that made the victory in France uh, possible. But, Chris, thank you very much for coming on. Um, as you're talking, it just raised a whole lot of subjects that I think will form the basis of future discussions, and I'm sure we'll have you back on sooner rather than later. Thank you so much, Sarah. Greatly enjoyed it.